You're listening to a podcast from New Heights Church. We hope you're encouraged to glorify, grow, and go. Uh, when we uh, plan to consolidate the campuses and roll into one location, it's a big change for our church. And when we plan to have two Sundays here, we knew, okay, this is a big Sunday for us. It's an important Sunday. And, um, and Jeremy's like, I'll take the last service at the Valley Building, and he's going to preach next week on the two great commandments of Jesus, right? Like every preacher I know has a great home run sermon on that. And I get to preach about a woman that had seven husbands and who she's going to be married to in heaven, all right? So, um, so buckle up, buttercup. Here we go. Um, but I want you to see what heaven is like. Um, some of y'all know a guy named Jimmy Maynard. He was an elder candidate with us before he moved to Cincinnati. His job took him there. Uh, one of our deacons, Ben Hewitt, works with him uh, for the same company. And Jimmy and I and our wives uh, had tickets to go see Garth Brooks in uh, Paul Brown Stadium in, in May of 2020. And, um, and so obviously that got canceled. It got rescheduled to May of 21. And now it's rescheduled again uh, to September. And I'm, I've, you know, I love church stuff, but I've been so longing to gather and worship with other Garth Brooks fans, right? <laughs> um, but, but Jimmy and I were joking about it one day, and I was like, man, I, can't, I just can't wait. It's going to be so cool to have the whole stadium filled with people. And, you know, everybody knows every word to every Garth Brooks song that's going to a Garth Brooks concert. And Jimmy literally said to me, he said, that's going to be like the closest thing to heaven that I know. <laughs> And it's funny that we don't think of like church, it's like, but, but what he meant was just like a sea of people singing the same thing. And what I want you to do today, church, is just get a, a small foretaste of that. Um, the singing, as, as we all get to be in one service that we don't always get to do, um, circumstances aren't always going to allow that, but as we have these two Sundays in one service where more people are in the room, I just want you to get a feel for the family that God has called us into, a feel for what heaven will be like. And this passage is showing us um, a little bit, a little foretaste, if you will, of what heaven will be like. First um, Corinthians chapter two, verse nine, uh, Paul writes, "As it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love Him." We can't even imagine. The Bible tells us what heaven will be like, and so the, to preach this is a daunting task. The pastor of the church that I grew up in used to tell a story about a little girl asking him if there would be popsicles in heaven. And it's a little cute little girl, right? You don't want to crush her dreams. So he was like, well, do you like popsicles? And she said, yeah, I love popsicles. And he said, well, there'll be popsicles in heaven then. And here we have this question coming to Jesus and essentially, will there be marriage in heaven? And what will that look like? And what will that be like? And so I want to try to answer that question for you. Um, two points in today's sermon. I want you to see that this life is temporal. We need to not hold on too tightly to the things of this life. And secondly, that God's promises are eternal. Let's look at the first, this temporal life. Jesus is confronted uh, by these religious leaders once again. On May 2nd and 9th, as we've been preaching through the Gospel of Mark, um, he's confronted by the Sanhedrin, the, the governing board of Israel that would ultimately put him to death. He's, last week, uh, Pastor Jeremy preached about taxes um, and, that, uh, and that exciting topic. And um, he was confronted last week by the Pharisees and the Herodians in the topic of taxes. And this week, he's confronted by this group named the Sadducees. Now, the Pharisees, in, in, in comparison to the Sadducees, the Pharisees were legalistic. They believed the entire Old Testament, and then they added to it. Uh, they, they upheld what they called the tradition of the elders. 
meaning that, that oral tradition or things that they had, these kind of rules that they had made up uh, were authoritative to them. Now, the Sadducees were the opposite. Where the Pharisees added to the Bible, the Sadducees subtracted from the Bible. The Sadducees only believed in the Pentateuch as being authoritative. That's the, the books that Moses wrote, the first five books of your Bible. That's the Pentateuch, and they only believed that the Pentateuch was authoritative. The Sadducees were also annihilationists, meaning that they believed that no one um, had an afterlife. There was no resurrection, that once you die, that's the end. It's the same as you were before you were born. You don't exist anymore. Um, my mom used to teach me that they didn't believe in the resurrection, and this is how you would remember. So they were sad, you see, and that's how you would remember the difference between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. But church, we are a resurrection people, aren't we? We're people of the cross, don't get me wrong. We observe that every Sunday and we will today in the ordinance of communion, but we are a people of the resurrection too. That, that we believe wholeheartedly in an afterlife and not just that we will continue to exist, but we will be resurrected in glory just like Jesus was. There was a, an interview recently um, through something called the If Gathering. They interviewed um, a leader, a church leader in Iran. Of a, of a big movement, one of the biggest revivals that's happening in the world right now is happening in Iran in the underground church. And uh, Pastor Matt Chandler in Texas um, was involved with this gathering. They talked to him and he, they interviewed this guy. And as they talked to him about the, the movement and how God was at work in, in these places where they're experiencing real persecution, they asked him what he thought about the Western church, the, the, the church in the West, um, Europe and, and in America. And he described the Western church, and he was careful, but he described it um, as, as this, and this is chilling to me, as being under a satanic lullaby. That he didn't denounce the fact that we're Christians, but, but brought, brought light to the fact that we're kind of being lulled to sleep. Don't worry about the realities that face our world. Don't worry about those things. You just seek your own comfort, rest, be chill. You see, but Christianity is not a better life kind of religion. Amen? Y'all got to help me a little bit, all right? Christianity is not a better life kind of religion. It is a resurrection religion. We trust in the resurrection, but before the resurrection, we also trust that we will suffer for the glory of Jesus. And Jesus had been teaching about the resurrection, and he'd even proclaimed his own resurrection three times, actually, in Mark 8, 9, and 10. And Jesus says um, to a couple of women in John 11 this, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And so Jesus very clearly made it, made it prominent to people that there was an afterlife and Jesus would raise people from the dead. And they bring Jesus this extreme and ridiculous hypothetical scenario. These men who denied the resurrection, they want to prove Jesus wrong in front of everyone. And so their thought is if, if they can come up with this weird scenario, this hypothetical thing and prove that it's a conundrum of who this woman in the afterlife will be married to when she had seven husbands on earth, then they could disprove the resurrection. And what they present is what Pastor Patrick wrote to you. A wife marries seven brothers consecutively, one after another after another. Tragically, each husband dies before, um, before blessing that woman with children. And what they're referencing is Deuteronomy chapter 25. I'll read these verses to you, but it's in Levitical law that if, uh, that if this happened, then the brother was supposed to marry the widow. It says, if brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. 
Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. This is the Levitical law that you see playing out in the book of Ruth. If you have been at our church um, as, as recently as December, we preached through the book of Ruth and talked about this Old Testament law. And so they say in observance of this law, just hypothetically, a little bit ridiculous, but if this woman uh, marries a man and he dies, and she marries the brother and he dies, on through seven men, they say, who's she going to be married to in heaven? You see, your doctrine of heaven, Jesus, doesn't stand because there's a problem because we don't know how she could be married to one of them in heaven. And Jesus answers in verse 23, he says, in the resurrection when they rise again, um, or I'm sorry, they, they question, whose wife will she be? And their logic is if they can point this out, then they will catch Jesus. It's a, it's a trap. Jeremy talked last week about some kind of admiral. I don't know who he's talking about. Something to do with Star Trek or something. And um, they said, it's a trap. But their mistake was they were defining heaven by earthly joys. And we do the same thing. We don't mature and we become like the little girl who says, are there popsicles in heaven? Well, I have my my spouse in heaven? Will I have my son in heaven, my daughter, my parents? Will I have these people in heaven? And those aren't bad things. It's not bad to want to have your loved ones in the afterlife. It's not bad to want popsicles in heaven. But child of God, listen to me. God has prepared so much more for you. You can't even imagine. I don't know what's better than popsicles, but there's something out there better than popsicles. Okay? And we're not going to miss popsicles and we're not going to miss marriage either. Jesus plainly gives us the answer in verse 24. He says, is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Now notice he says they are like angels in heaven. We don't become angels. Um, I, you know, I've, seen, I've seen lots, especially in Appalachian culture, we see lots of people saying, fly high, you've gained your wings. And I understand the sentiment behind that, but we do not gain our wings. We do not become angels in the afterlife and in the resurrection, but rather we remain who we are. We're human beings. God's created us in his image. Um, but he says that we're not going to be um, having marriages in heaven. And it may make a child sad to tell them there will be no popsicles. It might make you sad to tell you there will be no marriage in heaven. But if that makes you sad, don't be sad because you have no idea what God has prepared for you. It hasn't entered your imagination. You see, our tendency is to want to fill heaven with earth, but God's plan is to fill earth with heaven. God is coming to us. He's revealing himself to us progressively in his redemptive narrative. And he is bringing to us all the glories of us being transformed into the image of his son. And we say, no, we want to hold on to the popsicles. That's child's play. You have not moved on to the, the depth of who God truly is. When, when uh, my oldest was very little, Bella, she, um, she was just the cutest little thing. And y'all with multiple kids, remember when you had one kid? <laughs> we had like this, this giant picture frame of Bella. And then like when Micah was born, like we didn't have a picture of that kid anywhere. <laughs> Um, but when, when we just had one kid, Bella, we, we bought her all this stuff for Christmas one time. And one of the things we got her was a big Christmas set uh, or a big, uh, I'm sorry, a kitchen set. 
And, and she, had, she had a sink and a fridge and all these cooking utensils where she could make all this food and stuff. And she found um, the batch of fruit and she took an orange, a toy orange, a little plastic orange, and she latched onto that thing. And to her, that was the best thing you could ever imagine. She didn't want nothing to do with the kitchen set. She didn't want nothing to do with the other Christmas presents she got. She didn't want Barbie dolls. She didn't want none of that. She just wanted to carry that orange around like her whole life. For a long time, she carried that orange around. She didn't know what an iPhone was, right? Now we can't separate her from her iPhone. <laughs> Let alone the joys of having a husband or the joys of having a child or the joys of having a grandchild. That her life holds so much more and, and we haven't even tapped into eternity yet. And, and we become like that spiritually sometimes. We don't hold on to these little things. We don't hold on to a little plastic orange and God's saying, it hasn't even entered into your mind what I've prepared for you. Don't come at the Lord with your little popsicle type dreams of what eternity is gonna be like. He's got so much more prepared for you. And he's given us reminders of these things and communion's one of them, baptism is one of them, singing is one of them, things that lift our eyes. They're intended to lift our eyes off of earth for just a moment. That's what Sunday's for, that we gather ourselves and it's stressful, I know, to get to church and get everybody together and some of y'all are driving a little further to church and when we go to Milton, some of y'all are gonna have, you're gonna be displaced in your commute, like I get all that, but it is important for us to gather together because when we do that corporately, we lift our eyes to something higher than what we put our eyes on all through the week. We focus on something eternal, not temporal. And that in the, in the ordinances of the church and communion and baptism, we focus on something eternal and beautiful that God has just given us a small foretaste of. But see, the Sadducees, they took the reminders and they made them focuses for them. And listen, we enjoy this temporal life and we enjoy the things in it. It's good things, but we should enjoy them in light of the fact that we're on a journey to someplace eternal, amen? There's only one thing in the whole world that you should want to take to heaven with you, and that's people that don't know Jesus. And so let's look at these promises. Secondly, we see that this life is temporal. Number two, that God's promises are eternal. So how will Jesus answer the question? Once they put him on the spot, he tells them twice in verses 24 and 27. If you have your Bibles, look at that verse. 24 and 27, he tells them twice that they are wrong. In 27, he even adds that you are quite wrong. And he uses a Greek word, uh, as Mark writes this, to describe the narrative. Mark uses the word planao, which is translated wrong, and, it's, and it means to wander away from truth. It's where we get our English word planet from, that the, that the planets are um, roaming away from, they're, they're kind of wandering, if you will, out in space, orbiting. And Jesus is saying, y'all are so wrong, you're out in space. It's like what some of y'all teachers told you in school. You're out in space, or you're out in left field. That's kind of what Jesus is saying to them. And so what will eternity be like? If we're not gonna have one of our seven husbands in heaven, where does that leave us? Does Jesus give us any clues to that? Well, Jesus does a little bit here, but the rest of the Bible does too. Uh, so let me break some of the misconceptions about that. I don't know if anybody in here plays the harp, um, but if you don't, you probably won't in heaven either. Um, so no matter how many Looney Tunes episodes you've watched, um, it, there's no evidence of that in the Bible, but we will sing. The Bible tells us that in, in eternity we will gather and we'll sing holy, holy, holy. We don't become angels, but Jesus says we will be like them. Not in the fact that we get wings, but in the fact that we are eternal beings serving God forever. 
Now, we're not in the clouds like those babies you see on the paintings and things like that. We're not floating around um, with halos, but more accurately, the Bible describes heaven as a city or even garden-like imagery with trees and rivers and gates and streets. Think a lot like earth, actually. The Bible actually describes a new heaven and a new earth. That, that when God created in Genesis 1 and 2, he, he knew what he was doing, right? Sin uh, messed that up and brought a curse to it. But in the new heaven and the new earth, it will be like he intentionally and originally planned. And our bodies will be recognizable but glorified. Can I get a witness? Can I get an amen on that? I am excited for a glorified body that I can eat whatever I want without worrying about the complications that come from it. There is no night in heaven. There is no sin in heaven. There is no pain in heaven. And there is no death in heaven. And Jesus' correction of the Sadducees is brilliant. He doesn't just tell them they're wrong, although he does. He also proves to them they're wrong. And Jesus uses God's word as his defense of the truth. That's a good model for you, by the way, to defend truth, use the word of God. And in Mark 12, 26... He says, as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now, when I first read this and said, I've got to preach this and I've got to preach how Jesus is proving heaven. He's proving the resurrection to the Sadducees. I look at this and I'm like, not that I think you did a bad job, Jesus, but I just look at this and I'm like, I, you know, I went to seminary. I can already think of some better Old Testament passages. I know y'all are thinking like, where's he going with this? Let me show you. Psalm 16 says, you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or Hades in Greek or the place of the dead or hell as we would say in English or, or let your holy one to see corruption. You make known to me the path of life and your presence. There's fullness of joy at your right hand. There are pleasures forevermore. How about Psalm 23? When we go to a funeral to mourn the passing of someone, when we want to be assured of the fact that they're still alive, and in heaven, we read Psalm 23. The last verse says, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I'll dwell in the house of the Lord forever. What about not just from Psalms, but some of the prophets speak of the afterlife. Like Daniel 12, too, says, Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake. That sounds like a resurrection, right? Some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And so I look at this and I'm like, Why, Jesus, did you not use those passages of Scripture? Why didn't you quote those? Well, it's because the Sadducees didn't believe those. They didn't believe they were inspired. If, they would have, if he would have quoted those, they, he would, they would have just said, no, that's not, that's not authoritative. That's not the word of God. Only the Pentateuch is the word of God. And so what Jesus does is brilliant. He meets them on their plane of truth to prove to them that their plane of truth is shallow and insufficient. And he takes them to a story in the Pentateuch written by Moses that they view as the word of God. And he takes them to the story of the burning bush. Moses, um, in the Exodus, as God calls him to set his people free from Egypt, he appears to Moses in a burning bush. And he quotes, Jesus quotes, how God introduces himself. And that introduction goes, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now, how in the world does that prove the resurrection? I hope you're asking that because I, I sat all week and asked that. How does this prove the resurrection? You see, we miss it. I don't see what Jesus is doing here on the surface, but Jesus doesn't miss it. And he shows it to them clearly. And as he quotes this, 
It, it made me think of when we go to a funeral and someone has passed away, we tend to say, was. She was a sweet lady. My grandparents were very dear to me. At the time that this happened, this burning bush experience with Moses, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had all been dead for at least 400 years. And notice that God does not introduce himself as one who was their God. He says, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. How God introduces himself is important. Jesus' point is that even though to Moses those patriarchs had been dead for a long time, God was still their God and they were still very much alive and in God's presence. They had, for, for them, they had entered into the truth of the end of the Bible that we see in Revelation 21, which says, I heard a loud voice from the throne. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. So when God said, I am their God, he meant it and he will be forever. The bride of Christ is alive and will forever be alive. That's good news for you, church. The church is not dead and never will be. I went to a conference this week um, on and the, the subject or the topic of the conference was church revitalization. And the pastors that spoke at this conference were speaking to pastors who came to that conference because their church needed revitalized. And I'm not going to brag on you too much, but a little bit. But I went thinking we need to sharpen a little bit. We're exhausted. We're tired. COVID's knocked the wind out of us, church. We're consolidating into one location. And as I went and I started listening to them, my soul was refreshing. It was so good for me as a pastor to sit there and listen. But then there were some things that I just couldn't resonate with. They made jokes about people complaining about the collar of the carpet. Y'all have heard pastors make those jokes, right? I just couldn't relate. At one point, one of the speakers talked about someone standing up at a service and quoting, not the Bible, but the constitution and bylaws of the church. And there was a collective groan in the room as if every pastor in the room had experienced that. Look at me, church. Look up here at me. I'm so thankful for you. So, so thankful that you are a people who care more about the things of God than the things of this earth. You care more about the mission of God than the way that, that our building looks or that decisions are made or what the bylaws say. In 2012, when our church was planted, man, we, we were like a cult-like gathering meeting in Giovanni's. <laughs> and if you would have come to me and said, hey, Will, we'll give you 200 people, some money in the bank and a building in Milton, what will you do with it? I'll say, we'll change the world with that. Shoot, I thought we'd change the world with six weird people at Giovanni's. <laughs> and I look around this room, not because of who you are, but because of who he is. There's nothing God can't accomplish through us, church. And in light of the eternal, we need not overvalue the temporal. The moral of the story is, that we are a church that is very much alive and when God proclaims that he is, present tense, the God of the living, that includes his bride and always will and so we are in his presence now on mission for him and when we die, we will die working up until our last breath. 
And then we'll be ushered into his presence to be with him forevermore. And Jesus finishes the argument by saying, he is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. He's not the God of the dead. He's not the God of the inanimate. He's not the God of possessions. He's not the God of prestige. He's not the God of your pride. He's the God of your life. He's the God of your very souls. And those souls are purchased. They're rightfully his because they have been purchased. And the price was the son. The price was the body and blood of Jesus, which we will remember today and look back to in an act of worship. And so I'm going to call you to repentance, church. I'm going to ask you to cleanse your hearts, that you would ask God to give you pure hearts and clean hands as we come to him in this act of worship. And as we prepare for communion, I pray that we would just collectively and corporately today, that we would pray for a spirit of unity in our church. And then we would truly see the task that's before us. We're in a world that, man, post-COVID is going to be different. It's just going to be. It's not going to be the same ever again. I don't think people are going to want to come back to church like they used to. There was, there was a time when lost people were kind of more open to the church thing. And, and if, if they were in the habit and kind of going through the motions, they ain't now. The mission might get way harder but we're in this. Until Jesus calls us home, we're in this. And we're on this mission together. And if we're going to be on this mission together, we have to be walking in step with the Spirit. We have to be true and able worshipers of God. And if you're not in the place that you need to be, you need to make that right with the Lord now. Take a moment to pray. I'm not going to bring you up front or embarrass you or anything like that. But you need to do business with God during this time. Some of you may need to become Christians during this moment right now. Maybe you've been going through the motions, maybe you've been attending church, but you have never really committed your life to Christianity. Would you make a commitment to the Lord today? I'm gonna, I'm gonna ask for forgiveness and I'm gonna follow through and profess that in baptism. Maybe you've just kind of, kind of been lackadaisical in your faith. Whatever place you find yourself in, let's go to him in repentance. And as we have this embodiment of his body and his blood, let's remember the price that it took to purchase our souls. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Make sure to check out past sermons on the app.